Welcome to the Timeout Bulls podcast, driven by Lexus. Visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the full lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Our guest this week on Timeout Bulls is veteran sports anchor Jim Rose of Channel 7 here in Chicago. He has covered the Bulls for over 30 years, and if anyone knows Bulls basketball, it's Jim Rose. And, of course, Jim was there with the Jordan years, day after day after day. And he shares some great stories, some wonderful, insightful storylines regarding MJ, Pippen, and the rest of the Bulls. So thanks for tuning in to Time Out Bulls, this week featuring Jim Rose of Channel 7 here in Chicago. Jim, let's talk a little about you coming to Chicago. What year was that? That was 1982, April the 5th, 1982. And um, the irony in the whole thing is that I didn't come to Chicago to work for Channel 7. Um, I got a call in my basement in Syracuse, New York one day. Uh, I was working on, I'm, I'm, a great, I'm a big woodworker. I like building cabinets and things. And I had a home in Syracuse, New York. I was working for WIXT Channel 9 in Syracuse at the time. And, you know, as you know, we go through our career, you send out tapes and everything. Mm -hmm. And I'd gone from Berlin, Germany to Providence, Rhode Island to uh, Syracuse, New York. And every week I was sending out a tape because I wanted to get to a bigger market. And I I got a box full of rejection letters. And then on one day in March of uh, 1982, I got a call to go to New York to interview with CBS, NBC, and the fledgling ESPN. Oh. So I interviewed with all three of them. NBC, uh, CBS and ESPN uh, didn't have anything for me, but NBC said, we're going to send you on to Chicago and have you interview at WMAQ. At the time, Chet Kopic and Rich Brenner were the sportscasters. So I go to, uh, I fly to uh, Chicago, and I'm being interviewed by the folks at WMAQ, and uh, they offered me the job, and I said, wait, hold up a second. Before we, you know, I, I'd like to meet Rich and Chet and people I'm going to work with. Oh, don't worry. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So I sort of had a bad feeling about that. Not about Chet or Rich or anybody like that. And I called this agent who was representing me. And he said, uh, well, listen, I said, I'm going to go back to Chicago. I was doing some games for ESPN, uh, some play-by-play of women's basketball, which was just on its way up. I said, look, I'll go back to Syracuse. You can find me some other offers. He said, before you leave, go across the Chicago River over to 190 North State Street. By the time you get there, I'll have an interview set up for you. So I go over there. Um, Jay Berry was the weekend sportscaster yep. at the time. Yep. And he had given them an ultimatum, said, look, if you know you can't move me up to Monday through Friday, because they had three shows and Al Lerner was doing all three of them, because Tim Weigel had been doing uh, news. And he said, well, if you can't give me a Monday through Friday job, I'm out of here. So I walk in the door about six hours later, and they interview me, and they say, hey, how would you like to be our weekend sports anchor? So wait a minute. in a matter of hours, Jim, you interview at Channel 5. Mm-hmm. They offer you a job. Right. And then your agent says, I want you to go over to Channel 7. Right. Just hear what they have to say. Right. And then in, in a matter of hours, you've been offered two jobs in right. Chicago. Right. After being in the business for nine years and struggling and trying to get to a bigger market and all of that. And so they offered me the weekend, because at at MAQ I was gonna be the third guy, I was gonna host something called Sports Sunday, I think they still have it. Mm -hmm. And then I would be be reported during the weekend and just fill an anchor whenever Rich or Chet was on vacation. And so they offered me $20,000 more and to be the weekend guy, I said, okay, yeah, I'll take it. Done. Yeah, and so from that point, uh, on, 
my career started to, to take off, but it didn't. It really did not take off until number 23 came to Chicago. All right, and that's where we want to go with, um, not only with Jordan and you covering Jordan, but also about just covering local sports as it is back then, as it is today, with the advent of ESPN, mm -hmm. Fox, whatever. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about number 23. So you cover the Bulls. He arrives in 84. Right. Third overall pick mm -hmm. behind Akeem Olajuwon, Sam Bowie. And, um, and so here you are two years into the market, and Michael Jordan is drafted by the Bulls. Give me an indication where this market was at pre-Jordan and mm -hmm. once Jordan arrived. Uh, you're talking about uh, sports on a whole or just the yes. NBA? Yes, uh, just Chicago sports Okay, at and, that, and the relevance of the Bulls. Okay. At that point, it was, in population side, the third television market behind New York and Los Angeles. Uh, it was an okay sports market because the Bears weren't doing anything. The White Sox, I believe, had just been bought by the Jerry Reinsdorf ownership group. Um, the Bulls uh, were still under Lester Crown and that group. The Blackhawks were, you know, they were hitting and missing here and, here and there. Uh, the Cubs were not doing a doggone thing. So it was just a standard, you know, everyday uh, sports market. I, be, I believe New York and L.A. were ruling the roost mm -hmm. at that time. And so uh, in, in uh, April of 84, the Bulls draft Michael Jordan, and that was the year that they were going to have the Olympic Games. And so uh, our station decided that uh, we would go down and see uh, who this man, Michael Jordan, was. Because at the time, there wasn't much stuff out there. I mean, we knew he was a great player because he had won an NCAA championship um, with North Carolina, making that shot. In 82 in New Orleans. Right. And so my, I'll never forget this as long as I live. My cameraman was Billy Newsom, who is now retired. We go down to Bloomington, Indiana to go see the U.S. basketball tryouts on a team that had um, uh, Charles Barkley was trying out for that team and did not make that squad. So this was uh, Bobby Knight was coaching that team. Before the practice began, they, the guys were out on the court just goofing around, and Jordan was, you know, chatting with Barkley and whatever, and they were, goof, you know, playing a little, you know, like pickup basketball. And so I said to my cameraman, just tape, film this. You know, there were no restrictions at the time. And Michael made this move around Barkley. Barkley was 6'6", 260 pounds at that time. And he was about, Barkley was about eight feet from the right side of the basket. Jordan went around him in the air and dunked the ball on the other side. And I said, Billy, run that back in the camera. And I ran, I said, oh my God, did Chicago realize what they have? About four months later, our station decided we were going to cover teams like the Beat Writers. You were going to go to their practices every day, whether you had a camera or not. You were going to cover them like a Beat Writer would do for the newspapers. Nobody wanted the Bulls. I said, well, I like basketball, and I knew about Jordan. I said, I'll take the Bulls. We started covering them. So the beat was up for grabs. Let me get this straight. Correct. They're going around the room saying, all right, Bears, Cubs, Sox, Hawks, mm -hmm. Bulls. And so you're saying to yourself, are you kidding me? Right. And not, because none of the other teams were doing very well. I mean, the Bears were still, even if the Bears were 8-8, eight and eight, they were still the number one story because they were the Bears. Right. Cubs were not even a, a factor, and the White Sox certainly weren't even on the table, and the Blackhawks were just skating around on thin ice, so to speak. So I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take the Bulls. Nobody wants the Bulls. So I would go to every practice, and I'd go to the, the games, whether yeah. I was covering them or not, or I had a camera crew or not. And I st struck up a friendship with Michael. And so through the years... Beginning in 87, when, when they got Pippen and Horace Grant, um, we started to do these shows called Eyewitness Sports Final. 
So because of my relationship with Michael, I said, Michael, you should be doing this show. He says, man, television takes too long and da-da-da-da-da. I said, Michael, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do 16 Eyewitness Sports Finals, which is you come in every Sunday at about 10.15. We go on the air at 10.45, and you're, I'm 10.30, and you're gone by 10.45. I said, don't worry. I'll take you through the whole thing with the highlights and everything. And Michael was, basketball-wise, very astute. So you, you didn't even have to show him the highlights. He knew, you know, what was going on. So we do these sports final shows, and I said, listen, we need to do a half-hour show called Michael Jordan's Airwaves. He said, oh, no, no, I know how that goes. It takes an hour and a half, two hours, and my time is... I said, Michael, I'm going to guarantee you that if we go past, from the time you walk in the building to the time we're done taping and you leave in your car, 45 minutes. For every five minutes after the 45 minutes, we'll give you $5,000. What? Yes. You told him that. I told him that. He goes, you got a deal. <laughs> so I go to my general manager. I tell him, he says, wait a minute, what? I said, look, we got Michael George for $250,000 doing 16 sports finals and six eyewitness sports, uh, 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 Michael Jordan's airwaves. So we never, ever paid the $5,000, and here's why. The show was always going to be taped on a Saturday or Sunday night, depending on when they were in town. And I had a guy that was about 6'4", was the spitting image of Michael Jordan, so we had him as a stand-in. We had a live-to-tape studio audience. Wait a minute. You had... We practiced the show, so the camera guy, the director, the tape guy, everybody would have their cues ready to go in. With the stand-in. With the stand-in. Then Michael would arrive around 10.30. We'd roll tape at 10.35. We wouldn't put any of the commercial breaks in. Now, would he see the tape ahead of time, or was this just cold? No, this was cold. This was, and all those shows were fat. We, the station ended up making $1,250,000, so they made a million dollars clear profit. <laughs> did did Michael right. ever realize how much money they were making off that show? Uh, after it was all said and done, he did. And <laughs> how many next, years did he do that? He did that for one, one year, year. And then he went to Channel 2 with Johnny Morris because they offered him $450,000, and all he had to do was five of those 15-minute shows after uh, the newscasts, which were live, and no half-hour shows. So he made a hell of a lot more money, uh, you know, doing less shows with Channel 2. But their ratings weren't as great as ours because we were number one at the time. Well, Jim Rose is our guest, and Jim has covered the Bulls since 1982, 83, 84, leading into the Jordan years at 84. So let, let's let's turn the clock back. Um, Jordan arrives, and I remember, I, I've been here since 79, so mm -hmm. I remember the lean years, coaches a revolving door. Jordan arrives. When he came to Chicago, Jim, and he signs this deal, and I can still see that picture that's left an indelible mark in my mind with him and Rod Thorne. Mm -hmm. and, he had a little bit of hair. Yes. And and so what was it like with Jordan? Did he have a posse at the time? Mm -hmm. Did you have to go through a certain individual? Or was Jordan just Jordan before Jordan became Michael Jordan? Right. There was no posse. Uh, basically, it was his mom and his dad, and he was represented by David Falk. Michael was the first guy to completely and totally use the media for his benefit. And what do you mean by that? By that meaning that he would show up on time for interviews. At the end of games, he would always go in and get dressed and come out all natalie dressed. He would answer everybody's question no matter how long it took. Uh, he knew how to cultivate the media. Uh, you know, Today it's sort of an adversarial uh, relationship. And that, I think, helped build his empire uh, as well. What I learned later was... Because people would see him in a beautiful suit. Mm -hmm. they, they would see how articulate this man was, mm -hmm. that he was always on. Mm -hmm. At least that's the perception because mm -hmm. those 30-second sound bites, 
There's Michael Jordan. Wow, does he look great. Right. And, and, and that, and advertisers lined up. They were Chevrolet, McDonald's, Coke, Bigsby and Crothers. I mean, this is the early years. He made more money off the court, maybe two to three times more in his early years uh, than he did with his salary as a member of the Chicago Bulls. And uh, his mother and his dad are directly responsible for that because they put him with the right people. I mean, David Falk, they had classes for him to how to deal with the media. And I mean, this was long before any of this. How was he with the media, Jim, when he first arrived? He was fabulous. And he was, you know what, during his entire career, he really was fabulous with the media up until the point to when his father passed away. And when um, there was a time uh, we went to New York, and I, I saw, sort of saw a little switch in him, and I don't blame him for this because people started to attack his personal life. Uh, you remember the famous 55 points he dropped yes. on the Knicks yes. the night before he was in Atlantic City having a good time. Well, look, I don't care if he showed up five minutes before the game. He scored 55 points. And um, our station takes a little bit of the blame for that because they sent Chuck Gowdy, our investigative reporter, and Chuck is yelling questions at him. Hey, do you, you know, why were you gambling and all that? And he looked at, gave Chuck this look, and then he looked at me. And later on, he called me over. He said, what's going on here? I says, Michael, I tried to tell our television station that this is sports. It's not news. It's not business. And I apologize for that. He said, look, I don't hold you responsible for that at all. And so our relationship um, continued. And it was really sad because it was much ado about nothing. And as you now know, I mean, look at television, look at the media today. It's all tabloid journalism. It's all how much dirt can I find and uh, all titillation and all that craziness. And that, that's the part I just abhor. I cannot stand it. Jim, when he wanted to get his message out, from a local standpoint, because of your relationship and you had developed that relationship, did he come to you? Because on the national level, it appeared, and again, mm -hmm. I'm just a viewer, but it appeared he would go to Ahmad Rashad. Right. Because he and trusted, that was his guy. Because he trusted Ahmad, and he knew that Ahmad was not going to make him look bad. And, and really, at the end of the day, what was there to make him look bad about? And there were certain writers, and I mean, I'm sure you can talk to Sam Smith about this, because Sam saw all of it too. Sam never participated in any of that. About the closest he came was when he wrote the Jordan Rules, and I think the Pistons were more mad about it than the Bulls were. But um, uh, he would he would um, he wouldn't give me any more nuggets than he would give any of the beat writers like Lacey Banks, um, Sam, a few of the other guys. But um, because I would show up at his charity events, the golf tournaments and whatever, uh, we developed a relationship and, and, and developed a trust. And I said to him, look, I'm never going to make you look bad. If you do something illegal, I have to report on it. He never did anything illegal. Uh, as far as morality is concerned, the closest it ever came to was this thing with Slim Buller. And when I talked to him about it, he says, Jim, I didn't know this guy was this way. You know, and this was the, the, the golf. The golf thing where he wrote the check for him. He said, I'd have never, if I knew it was going to be traced back to, I'd have never wrote a check. To, I didn't know what this guy did. I just met him on a golf course. And, he, and, and you know how super competitive. Michael is the most competitive person I ever saw. And his father put it best. He said, Michael doesn't have a gambling problem. He has a competition problem. Thanks for tuning in to the Time Out Bulls podcast driven by Lexus. The Bulls aren't the only ones with a long season. We all know the Chicago winter can be long and challenging as well. But with 22 all-wheel drive models by Lexus, you don't have to be stuck inside. Visit your Chicago area and Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive today. 
Lexus All-Wheel Drive, your antidote for cabin fever. All right, two points I want to talk with you, uh, Jim, and this is great insight. We appreciate you joining us today on Time Out Bulls, our Bulls podcast, on Bulls.com, our Bulls social media, and Apple iTunes. If social media had been around then as it is today, because everything is out there, Mm -hmm. everything, Mm -hmm. and players tell me, Jim, they can't even go and socialize anymore because of cell phone cameras. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's John Doe, who's on a business trip, oh, there's so-and-so, click, Mm -hmm. and it's on Twitter within seconds. Mm -hmm. So had social media been as prevalent back in the 90s and 80s as it is in 2016, Mm -hmm. 2017, and beyond, Where do you think this would, and how do you think this would have affected Jordan? Michael probably would have retired after the third championship, after he lost his dad, and he would have never come back. After the third? That's correct. Because remember, when his father was killed, I mean, Michael just went into a funk, as as you would normally expect any human being, because he was so, his dad used to come on the road with us. I mean, we had great times, card games and things like that, and everything was all fun and games. And if there was social media around, my God, he would have been gone after those third championships because it was it, it would have been an intrusion into his life. And thank goodness it didn't come around until after they won the other three. It started to make, you know, with uh, uh, MySpace and uh, whatever the other one was, FaceTime or whatever. But I think that he would have retired after the third one had social media been uh, back in 19, say, 92, 93 like it is today. The, the death of Jordan's father. How did you cover that and the remnants and the speculation of Jordan retiring? That was an interesting period of time Mm -hmm. for the Bulls for media coverage in this Mm -hmm. market and with all the innuendos that were out there that Mm -hmm. a lot of people were speculating why he retired. First off, it was disgusting, uh, the speculation and the innuendo, because um, people tried to tie it to Michael gambling and perhaps somebody didn't get paid off, you know, getting paid their money. They lost uh, one from Michael and so they killed him or whatever. Michael's father um, uh, liked to drive. He liked to see the country driving. And Michael had bought his dad uh, this beautiful Lexus, a sports the sports car. So he, Michael's father would just say, I'm getting in the car and today I'm just going to go. I'm go driving. From, he'd go from Wilmington to Charlotte or he'd go from Wilmington to New York or something like that. But he, because he, he said, I could, yeah, I could get on a plane, but I like to drive. I like to see things and whatever. And, and that's what happened. And he stopped along the side of a road to just take a nap. Remember, you know, Michael's dad was in his fifties, I believe when he, when, mm-hmm. he, when he was killed. And so, you know, driving, you know, three or 400 miles, you know, he, he might have to take a nap after sure. 200 miles or so. And these people just came on him and, you know, broke into the car and killed him and took his jewelry and, you know, the ring that Michael gave him for winning uh, the, the, the first uh, three championships. And it's really, really sad because even our station got involved in it. And um, I had to tell him, look, you all got I, I said, look. I will cover this as a news slash sports story, but I'm not going to get involved in any of this salacious innuendo because, it's, first off, it's not true. You can't prove it. You can't prove any of that stuff. And so they sort of let it go. But there were other news outlets that, uh, writers and whatever, that wouldn't let it go. And I think that also soured Michael um, as well. And, I, and I'm sure he was in a funk for a couple of months after that. Were you surprised the way he retired? Well, here it is, 1993, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. and... We're covering White Sox Blue Jays, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, there is a buzz going around that Jordan's retiring. Right. 
I, I wasn't surprised um, because knowing of the relationship he had with his dad. And remember, he when he'd come to Chicago, he took everything on his shoulders emotionally to try to build this, this franchise back up from trying to cultivate the players that weren't going to be here, you know, trying to be their friend, to finally listening to his father and saying, son, you got the lead. Remember, it was seven years before they won their first championship. That's why what you saw in that locker room in Los Angeles with him hugging that trophy so tight and just guffawing, just uh, Yes, all the emotions coming out. It all came out. And then there was, and a lot of that emotion had to do with the Detroit Pistons because they were playing dirty basketball, as you know. Yes. And Michael just abhorred that. And when they finally beat Detroit, that emotional thing just went away. And that's why it was so easy for them to beat the Lakers, despite the fact that they had better coaching, better players, you know, a whole better, uh, younger players in a better situation. And then the emotion of trying to win the second championship and then the third championship. And then all of a sudden his father gets killed. Not die from cancer or natural causes, uh, gets murdered. I don't know how he waited that long before he announced his retirement and said, I, I just got to get away from all this. And now, remember, after they won the first championship, the level of media scrutiny started to go up. It really, really did to where when they were having charity events, uh, I would get a call from Michael's security team, and they, and they would say, listen, uh, we're going to have this special thing here. Michael said he wants you to be over here with your camera and whatever, and we'll do whatever we got to do. Because he knew that the media, it was absolutely So covering Jordan control. became 12 months. Exactly. Exactly. When he um, decided he was going to come back uh, the first time, and he was in the Bahamas, and he cut his finger, you know, uh, trying to with, with a, cigar. a cigar cutter, yep. you know. We sent Brad Palmer to the Bahamas to interview because I, I think I was on I was in Europe at the time on vacation. So Brad Palmer, the professor, the professor and we all love Brad. Yeah. So your station sends Brad Palmer to the Bahamas to find out what's going on with Michael Jordan cutting his index finger on a cigar cutter. Well, that too, and, and you know, and, coming and, back and, and, and all of that. Back. And, uh, you know, I think that soured Michael, too, especially to local media, because it was, hey, look, guys, after the game is over, I come out here, I answer all of your questions. I create situations where you can have media events where you can come and you can get your sound bites and all the rest of that stuff. And now you're going to do this to me? You're going to assail me for having fun gambling like anybody else? He says, well, look, if uh, the average person who makes maybe $50,000 a year, if he gambles away $5,000, that's 10%. I, I'm gambling away one one hundredth percent of my money, and I'm winning most of the time. Why am I being assailed for this? And uh, he took it very personal, and all of that built up. And when his father was killed, he said, that's it. Okay. So, so Jordan goes to baseball. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised it was baseball, that that was going to be his release, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, because he nurtured that competitive you know, soul of his mm-hmm. that made him such a, a magnificent player, the greatest player in the history of basketball? Mm-hmm. How did you cover, because you have to be transparent, the fact that, you know what, Michael, I, I, I get the fact you love baseball, your mm-hmm. dad loved baseball, mm-hmm. as a kid you played baseball, but you're struggling hitting the curveball. Right. And it came from, remember, Tim Grover, who was the foremost athletic trainer of his day, got Michael uh, right before the first uh, championship. And the last time they lost to Detroit, he went to, he found Tim Grover, and Tim Grover had him working out for basketball. 
developing his the muscles he uses for basketball. Yes. He said, I got to bulk up a little bit. I need some body armor to compete with these guys because it's a, such a physical game now. Well, when he went to baseball, he had to switch his body around. Tim then had to figure out how to train his body to be able to hit a ball, to be able to throw. Because remember, Michael looked kind of awkward. He's six foot six. He looked kind of awkward throwing the ball and looked kind of awkward running the bases and even hitting and whatever. And getting out of the batter's box because it's it's a different motor skill and memory the way it is in basketball. Right. And so... People saw that, and they're going, wait a minute, this is the greatest athlete on the planet. Why can't he just play everything? I mean, he's, he's a scratch golfer. Uh, he's a, the best basketball player on the planet. Uh, I found out per, from personal uh, history that the guy can play ping pong, table tennis, yes. like nobody's business. Correct. Uh, he's great at pool, so he's got the hand-eye coordination. So why can't you translate it to baseball? Baseball's the toughest, the toughest thing to do in sport is hit a round object with a cylindrical object. 60 feet, 6 inches away when someone's throwing... 95, right. 98 miles an hour, or taking right. something off a pitch because right. of the angle of the arm, mm-hmm. the way you hold the baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, so as a reporter, Jim, did you ever see him play baseball other than yes. the, the Cubs-Sox game at, at Wrigley? Uh, down in Birmingham. You went uh, to Birmingham. Yes, when they, you know, he first went down there. But unbeknownst to me, before he announced he was going to do that, Michael spent Eight, nine hours in the cage every day for like four or five weeks, hands blistered from holding the bat with Walt Hereniak. And Walt said, this guy's a great athlete. We need to give him an opportunity just to see if it could work. He also was cashing in his chips with Jerry Reinsdorf, who owned, who still owns the White Sox, owned them then, and said, hey, this is what I like to do. And Jerry said, whatever you want to do, Michael, because you helped me over here with this Bulls franchise, elevate it, and the whole NBA to this stature. So why shouldn't you have an opportunity to go and do this? Mm-hmm. And so that's why he sent him. Now, remember, Michael started out in Double uh, A, I think? Birmingham, in Southern Birmingham, League. The Southern League, right. I mean, that's a, that's tough to do. And it's a tough league. It yeah. still is a tough league. He, and, 25 and, years later. And to ingratiate himself with his with his teammates, he bought a bus. Yes. They, ne- they were going on school buses. They had a luxury coach that they were going from city to city in. And they were reveling in the fact that they were with Michael Jordan. He made them a better team. I mean, the, the manager, Terry Francona, ended up getting a major league job with the Boston Red Sox because of, uh, one of the reasons was because of Michael Jordan's re- uh, recommendation. So Jordan realizes, you know what, baseball's not my thing. In fact, Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. wrote a scathing mm-hmm. front front cover. Right, bag it, Michael. And, and yeah. Jordan, to this day, to this day, will mm-hmm. not speak I to Sports him. Illustrated. So he decides to come back. Give our listeners who may remember, maybe they're too young to remember now, as I'm dating myself, Mm -hmm. what was that environment like when Jordan announced in that that fax to the league office, I'm back? Right. And I never forget seeing it uh, on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times, I'm back. And we all went, oh my God, this is great. This is because as you well know, if we don't have a great story to cover, we got nothing to do. And his first game was at Indiana? Was that right? When his first game back? I believe so. Was it against no, the Pacers? No, but, but I mean, there was such... Oh, yes, because uh, he wore number 45. Yes. Right. And, there, I mean, we went down there. There was satellite trucks from all over the world, all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, and he comes out and, you know, he's playing against Reggie Miller. And we said, oh, he's back, the battle. And, you know, he had a few miscues here and there. And, you know, they made it to the playoffs, you know, right. losing to Orlando. Orlando. And was that, it the same, Jim, the first three compared to the... 
next three that, that Jordan eventually won? Was it the same feel-good story, everything is great, or did Jordan start putting you know, somewhat of a, a, of a shell around himself? Yeah. There were boundaries. There was that, that fence where, you know what? Yeah, I, you can't I, go. Right. No, you're right. There was that, that fence around that. And I understood it because I saw where he started where he took the league, because then remember, the league went for, it, it was just going on a nice steady scale, then all of a sudden, bam, it just ro- rose yeah. up. Bird, you know? Magic, and then of course Jordan comes five years after Larry and Magic arrived in 79. Right, and the drama that he created. Did your relationship change? Did his relationship with the media change? Yes, it did. Uh, it became a little more distant, only because uh, he had become this global icon. And, uh, you know, I'd see him at some of his events from time to time. But everyone wanted a piece of him. Of course. And, and for me, since I had known him in those early years, uh, I didn't feel that I needed to be involved in any of that craziness that was trying to get a, a piece of him. So I sort of pulled back because I didn't want to be just another person adding on to the psychological aspect of what he had to go through. You know, he was also going through a situation with his wife and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of that. And, and, you, it, it, and people don't need to have folks crowding them all the time like that. And so I would just participate in the media sessions that the, the Bulls would set up or that his organization or his foundation would set up. And, and that was about it. So Jordan, Jordan retires with the Bulls mm-hmm. after beating Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I mean, were you able to – ever have a conversation about why he retired at this point with the Bulls mm-hmm. and where he was at emotionally, physically. He said he had achieved everything he wanted to achieve. I, m- I remember going to his basketball camp at Elmhurst College um, after uh, they won the sixth championship and after he had retired because Phil Jackson wasn't going to be there. And that's another side story. We sent Brad out to Montana to chase Phil Jackson down on his bike and everything. It's just It was just a wild time. And he felt that without Phil, um, that it wasn't going to happen. And Michael is so competitive, if he didn't have everything in place to win, he wasn't going to participate. Because he knew that his talent and his will, he had the greatest championship heart I'd ever seen in any athlete of all times. He could will a team to victory. But if Phil Jackson wasn't there at the helm to lead the way, and then, of course, you know, they've hired Tim Floyd, there was no way Michael Jordan was going to play for Tim Floyd. What was it about the Jordan-Jackson relationship? Kevin Lockery was Jordan's first coach. Mm -hmm. Stan Elbeck comes in. Doug Mm -hmm. Collins follows. Mm -hmm. What made it special with Michael and Phil? Trust. It was trust. And when Phil said to Michael, Michael, you could score 63 points every night and we're still going to lose. He said, you're going to have to build trust amongst these other players like John Paxson or Steve Kerr, like Horace Grant or Dennis Rodman. He already had the trust of Scottie Pippen. He knew what Scottie could do. He made Scottie a Hall of Famer. Scottie had all the physical tools. Michael made him a Hall of Famer. All right, I'm going to give you a, a story. My broadcast partner, Bill Weddington. This is the Garden in New York when Michael got 55. Mm-hmm. Okay, how did that game end? They doubled Jordan, and he found Bill Wennington. Right. And okay. Wennington scored two points in that game. And, and the headline said, Correct. Wennington and Jordan scored 57. 57. But how many players would say to themselves, I'm at the Mecca. This is the biggest stage. Mm-hmm. I'm Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And regardless if it goes in or not, I'm going to take that shot because mm-hmm. I'm Jordan. 
No, he didn't do that, did he? That's right. He gave it up to an open man. That's right. And I I tell that story a lot to high school kids, college, pro athletes. Mm -hmm. Check your ego at the door. Everyone has an ego, and Michael had a huge ego. That's right. And I say that affectionately because when – when you've got the mojo like Jordan did, mm-hmm. you're you're entitled to have that ego because mm-hmm. he could back it. Well, but in that game, mm-hmm. when he found an open teammate, mm-hmm. and uh, how many players rushed to Jordan after that? Right. Everyone. Right. Because they saw exactly what we saw. Exactly. He gave himself up for the betterment of his team. Mm-hmm. He knew how to take his ego out of the equation to win. And even though I remember a famous quote by Tex Winter with Michael was, uh, you know, Michael, there's no I in team. Well, Michael goes, yeah, but there's an I in win. Yes. You know, so they both, it was a win-win situation for both of those guys. And in Michael's case, I think um, in the early years, in those first seven years, he really didn't have the the Jordan Air, so to speak. I mean, they were, uh, Jerry Krause, who should get a whole lot of credit for this, that whole thing, started piecing together the players to put together with Michael. I'll never forget the day they traded Charles Oakley. Michael was in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, Jerry knew that in order for the Bulls to take the next step up, he needed a low post center who did not need to score. Even though Bill Wennington, I mean Bill um, Cartwright, was scoring 21, 22 points a game with New York, he knew that in order for the Bulls to win, he needed a low post center that could rebound and that could flex his elbows. And you know, Bill Cartwright had them sharp elbows. Right. And Michael went ballistic because Oakley was his protector. Well, but Jerry Krause loved Oakley. Oh, of I mean, course it he, did. he didn't want to part with Oakley. But right. he put his hat on as right. a general manager and not as a friend Correct. or somebody who drafted right. him and found him at a Virginia union. Right. Correct. But then, remember, they had gotten uh, that draft. They had gotten uh, Pippen and Horace Grant from Clemson. Pippen from Central Arkansas and Horace Grant from Clemson. And he saw in Horace Grant that Horace Grant could be that power forward, not like Oakley could be, but the way that they needed him to be with Jordan, okay? Because up to that point, yeah, it was Oakley, it was Jordan and Oakley, and they were getting close to the playoffs, and they'd get, you know, in their first round to play the Boston Celtics, and Michael scored 63 points with that little spin move on Larry Bird and whatever. After playing only 18 games that year because of the stress because fracture of his foot. Right. Jim, let me ask you a question in closing, because you've had a brilliant career. You've covered Walter Payton, Ryan Sandberg, mm. Dennis Savard, the list can Carlton Fisk, it can go on and on and on. Is there anybody in your 30-plus years here in Chicago, close to 40 now, that has can match what Jordan brought this city and as a reporter covering a team, is it unparalleled in your opinion? Absolutely, without question. Michael Jordan's one, and whoever's number two is a number two way down below the Mendoza line. Even Peyton. Uh, even Walter, because when Walter was with the Bears, uh, Walter, uh, it was Walter Payton left, Walter Payton right, Walter Payton up the middle. And then they started surrounding him with a whole lot of great players. And Walter was the greatest running back in football. Even Jim Brown says that, okay? But at that point in time, sports in Chicago and in America wasn't what it was when the Bulls won their first championship in 91 and it started to move forward. Rights fees went up exponentially. NBA franchises. I mean, I think the Bulls were bought for $16.5 million back in uh, 82, 83 when mm-hmm. the Reinsdorf Group bought them. What are they worth today? $2 billion or something like that? I, I mean, you know, and at the point when they were winning championships, they were worth close to almost a billion dollars. So I think that when you think of 
sports figures or people that changed the landscape of Chicago sports, Michael Jordan's at the top. Yeah, certainly Walter Payton is, is there too, but nobody uh, from six championships to what he did in elevating sports, the, the cultural aspect of sport with the fashion, all the commercials, all the stuff that was off the court. I mean, Michael is a, a billionaire today, not because of what he did on the basketball court, but what he cultivated off the court. Jim, today where Jordan is as owner of the uh, Charlotte Ball Club, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Mm -hmm. He, um, you know, if he needs to make a statement, he makes a statement. Mm -hmm. um, was that based on, do you think, his experience with Chicago and the national media, or do you think he's at a point in his life now where, you know what, I'm still the highest grossing endorser, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I've been out of the sport 20 mm -hmm. years plus, but where is Jordan today? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you speak to him? Do you exchange texts, yeah. emails? No, we haven't, uh, we haven't talked in years, only because he's in Charlotte and, and I'm here, and, you, you know, he's gone in such a different uh, stratosphere and a different path. Um, but I'm sure if we saw each other, we'd hug and reminisce about the old times. And I've got some pictures of him uh, and, and me when I had a whole lot more hair and he had some hair. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a completely different aspect now of our relationship, which there really isn't much of that. Only because, you know, he's an owner in the NBA. And I think Michael's mellowed a lot. Um, from the competitive standpoint, certainly he wants to win an NBA championship, and he's going to do everything in his power to win an NBA championship for Charlotte because that's the last thing for him. He's won as a player. He's been an All-American. He's been an Olympian. Uh, he's been an NCAA champion. He's been an NBA champion. So now he wants to be a championship um, owner. And I certainly understand that. So I give him his space and you know don't bother him or anything like that. Okay. Jim, this has been great. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Chuck, it's my pleasure. I, I, for, before we close, I want to say how much respect I have for you and your long career and the job that you do calling Bulls games. When I'm driving around, I turn that <laughs> thing. I listen to you and Bill, and it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it, Jim. It's a pleasure to call your friend. Thank you, yes. Jim Rose of Channel 7, reflecting on the Jordan years with our uh, Time Out Bulls. We'll return next week with more right here on our Time Out Bulls podcast. Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see the extensive lineup of all-wheel drive vehicles. Don't let Mother Nature conquer you this winter.